0: We're not substituting one world order for a worse world order. I think we're moving towards an international anarchy. If you look at the modern European Union, I think power is understood by European bureaucrats to be mostly the ability to forbid things. You know, even societies in decline usually don't have a narrative of existing in decline. They don't have a narrative of, oh, you know, we're failing. What usually is presented and maintained is kind of a narrative, a story of victory. If you imagine us failing the energy transition, it looks like a world where we've reduced energy consumption and become so poor, we can't actually make nuclear at scale work or solar at scale. Because at the end of the day, organizations will be moved by people with names, not people without
1: Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm bringing you a brilliant podcast with Samo Beria. There are a few podcasts I listen to a few times every year because they've introduced so many fresh ideas into my thinking. For me, this is going to be one of them, and I hope it's going to be for you too. I'm truly exhilarated to talk about this. Sammo is the founder and president of the consulting company Bismarck Analysis, a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation and a senior research fellow in political science at the Foresight Institute. He's also the writer of the Bismarck Brief newsletter, linked below. We discuss all sorts of topics regarding civilizations and institutions. This includes the life of Otto von Bismarck, the political economy of institutions, narrative as a hedge against failure, the decline of the Roman Empire, the coming energy transition, differences between Europe and America, regulation as vengeance, live players, Elon Musk, and the global financial system. I think this will be particularly relevant for this episode. But if you like what you hear, please tell someone about the podcast, whether it's in person or on social media. Without further ado, here's Samo Buria. All right, so you run a company called Bismarck Analysis, and I assume that the namesake is Otto von Bismarck?
0: Uh that's correct. He's yeah, a so, historical figure I greatly admire.
1: Yeah. So who is Bismarck and why is he important? Otto von Bismarck
0: was uh, the chancellor, the first chancellor of a unified Germany and was the statesman that uh, shepherded Prussia through a number of social, political, economic and diplomatic challenges, uh, up to including defeating uh, the long-term rival of France and Austria, uh, sort of in finality concluding the geopolitical competition that had been taking place in Central Europe since the wars of religion in the 16th century, possibly, honestly, even earlier, arguably even uh, the struggle between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor in medieval times was a struggle over this space. The social challenges especially were one's, that were faced by a relatively conservative society, a relatively a very traditional society that encountered these mass challenges of industrialization. Today we have a hard time even imagining the sheer pace of change from 1800 to 1870, right? During this time period, there were parts of Europe where life hadn't changed much since the middle ages that were sort of thrust into modernity. And you know, with it came the prospect and the question of what should politics be in um in this new world. One of Bismarck's innovations, and one of the reasons I admire him, um, was the welfare state, social democracy. Now, why is it admirable to introduce sort of the first uh, retirement system and so on? Well, in his personal beliefs, uh, you know, Bismarck was fairly monarchist, fairly traditionalist. Yet he understood that pragmatism and innovation were necessary to sort of keep uh society running to prevent chaos war revolution uh but also ultimately to address iniquities of modern conditions as they are or rather as they were right what was back then modernity rather than what our preconceptions or theories would like them to be right so this is this sort of um deep appreciation for, regardless of where your wishes, where you wish uh, things would go or how you want the world to be, seeing where it is and doing the best you can with that.
1: Right. And I think this question of institutions is a very important one. I think maybe just for the audience, it would be important to just kind of lay out a list of accomplishments or a list of uh, inheritances that we draw from Bismarck nowadays?
0: Well, I think pretty much uh, important innovations in the modern system of taxation, uh, a lot of uh, details of how the modern research university works. By the way, the modern American university is derived from the Prussian university system. Um, important things about the structure of military, military command. Um, but the sort of basic political economy of a social democracy has, for Europe at least, been sort of the only stable, non-totalitarian political system around. The tumult of the early 20th century, right, with say the communist revolution, um, you know, fascism and so on, a lot of that was just this straightforward political side effect of societies maladjusting to the shock of industrialization, right? So the institutional inheritance then is uh, both in these systems of social change in the particular German brand of um, parlamentar- uh, parliamentary uh, democracy, right? The system started introducing elements like that. Um, the approach to foreign politics, right? Realpolitik is associated with Otto von Bismarck more than anyone else. But unlike some of the advocates of this worldview, he actually, you know, he actually could back it up. Uh, he, he did maintain relative peace in Europe. Arguably, you know, perhaps unfortunately, he led the best German foreign policy. Uh, you know, the best, you know, the best German foreign policy that, uh, was ever, was ever pursued. I think even say even the post war, uh, German foreign policy actually has more significant issues as we see now with the energy dependence on Russia. I mean, obviously a uh, great improvement over the first half of the 20th century, but certainly, <laughs> but look, an improvement over Bismarck. I don't think so. I think, I think Bismarck was exactly the kind of man, exactly the kind of thinker, um, that would have sought to address rather than ignore Europe's energy dependence and, you know, Germany where germany goes at least today just because of the size of its economy there goes europe
1: right i think that there's this political process where uh, where decisions are diffused they're they're put throughout a kind of network of failure points and this is kind of done to absol- absolve anyone of responsibility and it takes a certain It takes a certain outlook or a certain kind of game that someone is committed to playing. And here I mean game in the kind of game theoretic sense, in order to in order to take that responsibility, in order to take that uh, burden of decision making uh, onto oneself as a single person. And I think this leads naturally to your idea of live players. And I guess you would consider Bismarck one of them. So can you tell us? Can you tell us what a live player is and why that matters?
0: I think for the vast majority of our lives, we repeat what we've already done. If you think of anything from your morning routine to office work to honestly, most of education, right, where, you know, maybe the lesson is different every week, but the real lesson is that you're sitting in the classroom, right, and that you're, you're working on these exercises the way you always did. There's a, there's a routine, there's a script. We learn from each other, uh, by imitating these scripts, by taking the scripts, um, the patterns of action, the patterns of speech that work. We imitate them. We observe which ones work. However, you know, when circumstances change, all of those scripts are broken and it might naively seem like we all are quite good at working off of scripts, but it's just mostly not the case. I think it's it's very rare. It's very rare to evaluate completely novel situations on their own and construct on the fly an appropriate response, right? A response that doesn't have a clear imitation, a response that is an innovation, not just in terms of your own actions, but sort of anything you've ever heard of. Uh Consider this like common story of the sort of misunderstood innovator, right? sort of the outsider that is never properly recognized until after they succeed. The reason they're not recognized is because they have nothing to be compared to. Right. And live players, therefore at all levels of society, mind you, this doesn't necessarily need to go all the way, you know, to to statesmen in generals. Uh, though I think I would claim that they're, they are rare at all levels of society. This, um, Ability to agentically move through the world, to adjust on the fly, playing not off of a script, but, uh, sort of in response to your, to your immediate strategic circumstances. Um, I think these are actually the people we have to thank for, for so much of society's uh, resilience and adaptability.
1: Right. And a big question that I think you've tackled here. Is how these scripts are actually formed because because in a lot of circumstances the scripts work right. There, there's actually a good reason yes. not to deviate from the script. Yes, and yet you of actually, course at some mm-hmm. point, yet of course at some point they were written by someone.
0: Of course, um, the key thing about it is you know usually if you try to innovate you will do it badly. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. If all you're going to invent is the wheel, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> you know, the reason, the reason to reinvent the wheel is to, is to do something that's not a wheel. Right. Um, and you know, it, it just, I think just the experience of childhood, I mean, all of us here, I'm sure we still remember these, these lessons of how to ride a bike. I, I, you know, I really don't think if you were just left on a deserted Island, as a nine-year-old with a bicycle, you would necessarily know what this thing is for. Or maybe, I mean, maybe you would end up riding it, maybe you wouldn't. It seems so intuitive and obvious to us, but I really think it isn't. You know, just imagine, you know, you drop a bicycle to some islanders. Do they use it in the way it is designed to be used? Probably not. I think probably not. They might have better or different uses for the components, but everything in our life is informed by our deep socialization by our parents by our educational environment um by our media consumption habits um you know by religion by politics political indoctrination and these are all of these examples and social roles that we draw upon right sometimes these are you know very abstract right they can be even mythological like the the hero archetypes or whatever um, and it, it can be difficult to even recognize what's going on when something doesn't fall at least partially into those scripts, right? Whenever we try to describe something new, we, uh, we kind of, we, we, we can't, we can't put a single word on it. We have to, we have to use all of these labels where none of them quite fit until whatever the name is of the new social role, the new pattern until it is an example of itself, right? Until you start comparing other things to this well-known pattern of behavior. Once you can say, uh, you know, oh, this person is like a Steve Jobs of finance, for example, or Steve Jobs of the art world or something like this.
1: Right. We had moment, all these startups <laughs> describing themselves as Uber for X, right? And some of them work, like exactly. Swag. Some of them work. Yeah. Right.
0: Some of them, some of them work. Some of them don't. But, uh, my point more was that, uh, you know, as soon as you can describe someone as the Steve Jobs of something, that's the point where you no longer need to explain who Steve Jobs is. <laughs> I right, see. That's the point where he became ah. an archetype, where he became an archetype. He's a little bit less so now than he was 10 years ago. I think, uh, you know, sort of Elon is now becoming an archetype. I guarantee that the people will be described as the, uh, Elon Musk of something within the next five or, or 10 years.
1: I I think people have been described as the Elon Musk of something within I think just like the last week in the New York Times. Um Interesting. But, I, I haven't I
0: haven't read that, but I believe it.
1: Yeah. Uh I think I think actually this is what's interesting, and I'm not sure if this is novel, you can correct me if it isn't, but it feels novel. Uh, is that you have these uh you have these scripts becoming extremely popularized before the terminology catch catches up so not only is this necessarily something that is done by the few uh, but something that can be done by say millions of people something like um, the word selfie right we had the word selfie uh, far later than we actually had this phenomenon of oh everyone is taking a picture of themselves uh, in their own room in on social media and you had this time period where, um, where it was widely popular and no one, no one could put a pin on it because they didn't have the language. Uh, is, is this something that's happened also throughout history or is this something that's new to social media?
0: Oh, I think this has happened, uh, throughout history. It is, however, true that the speed of communication allows the social phenomena to be larger in scale and more. Synchronized, right? More, more temporally synchronized. Um, one of the most interesting things to me, for example, is that you know when uh, our best estimates for the proportion of Christians in the population of the Roman Empire, when the Emperor Constantine, you know, sort of decided to start uh, moving towards making Christianity the sacred religion, uh, it was about ten or fifteen percent. A century later. It was sort of pagans that were the minority. Now, a hundred years doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't sound fast. But if you imagine with the limitations of technology at the time, that's sort of lightning fast. That means you might be born into a pagan world and sort of, uh, you know, a pagan world of late antiquity and die in sort of the early medieval or let's let's call it late classical antiquity Christianity. Right. A very different set of values very different worldview, very different metaphysics, and honestly, different social organizations, right? We could talk a little bit about what those social organizations were, but, um, you know, history is full of these very rapid religious conversions, these mass changes in um, language and behavior, social reform movements, and also the invisible The invisible spread of, uh, you know, folkways of, of food, of, uh, ways of raising your children. All of this stuff has always been flowing. This is the stuff of culture. We, we talk about culture as this, you know, very detached thing. Um, but really culture is what we live. It, um, it can be, it can be changed to some extent, but to a very large extent, we're sort of like fish in water. Like you said, there's no, word for the selfie, the practice emerges first, then there's the word, and maybe the word helps the practice spread, right? As soon as you've coined the term selfie, you know, you have New York Times articles about, uh, you know, uh, people taking selfies, and then maybe older people start taking selfies too, a little bit faster than they would otherwise. Uh, it really is this, uh, this very intense, very um, energetic, copying, borrowing, sometimes incremental improving. And this this is not static, right? This is a metabolic process. So that's why when we think of culture, we shouldn't think of something that's sort of dead in a museum. We should very much think of this very dynamic, always living, always self-transforming uh, you know, system of people.
1: Yeah, let's go into that a bit more, because I think a big question everyone's facing today is how does that culture change? Who or what is in control of it, and how is it passed down?
0: To a very great extent, uh, there are some faster-moving currents and some slower-moving currents, uh, sort of of cultural change. And I think that to a very great extent, it is institutions often that function as their anchors. Um, it might seem obvious to us that the college experience is what it is, but it's very historically contingent. Uh, This is sort of a, this four year period, uh, you know, where you're sort of secluded from the secular world and secluded from the market and you are age segregated with your peers. And at the end of it, you know, congratulations, you've entered society or something like this. At least that's, that's what university can market itself as. This is so, you know, the very experience, right, you know, that the people can relate to this as an experience um, stabilizes culture. It makes it sort of mutually intelligible. Um, you know, the service experience during World War II played a similar role where basically, you know, anyone and everyone who was running the United States in the 1960s or 70s had some experience of uh, military service during World War II and contributions to that, to that effort, they kind of understood these large bureaucratic organizations, how they work. And in many ways, uh, you know, a large American corporation from 1950 was much more militaristic in the way it organized itself, right? Or at least the way, the flavor of the bureaucracy. Isn't, you know, NASA, at least the NASA that went to the moon, sort of best understood as just a World War II project, run after World War 2 you know it's an army building a rocket that goes to the moon uh at least it it can look that way right when we when we look back at the pictures and uh you know many of the people in fact had these experiences so the shared experiences we all have in institutions that have an intake that have uh, an outtake uh these are very important there is also something like this deep sort of convergent convergent set of interests that permeate society, especially, I think, to a, some extent sort of elites, right? Um, the elites of society, that is the people who have always disproportionate economic, political, social influence, uh, they often have sort of interests that are quite stable over long periods of time even if, say, members of the elites change, right? So the particular way that uh, financial incentives might be set up, the particular way political stability is achieved, uh, these might be, you know, not necessarily even directly handed down. They might just be reinvented on the spot over and over again. It's sort of like, you know, when you start a fire, as long as you keep it sustained with fuel, it never really goes out. It just keeps on going. You don't have to, you know, relight it every few minutes. But the, the quality sort of the quality of some of the, the more intricate social machinery, the thing that sustains these universities, sustains these, uh, government organizations, honestly, even sustains companies. That's far more fragile. I think in those cases, when those are, you know, these functional institutions, that is institutions sort of fit for purpose, institutions where sort of all the, you know, all the, all the cogs fit, the organization actually does its job. uh I think those types of organizations on paper, everyone claims that they have this t- kind of organization, but it's really striking. You know, when you see one, it just stands out so much. It's an order of magnitude better uh than its competition. Right. And it just, you realize that actually for the most part, Most of our organizations around society feel like bad Xerox copies of the few, of the few functional ones. So there's like a massive subsidy to all of society from the functional organizations. It, um, it, it takes two shapes. The first one, the first way in which it's a massive subsidy is that it is an exemplar, right? Again, the imitative example that we can all safely copy and that, you know, if our copy is pretty good, uh, it works pretty well, and that's you know that's excellent. The second one is these organizations just directly I think out produce uh, and out innovate and indirectly subsidize all the other less functioning organizations. So these are uh, these functional institutions and the people who can create them, and especially the people who can handle the succession problem that is the problem of replacing themselves. Um, with someone that also understands this like fine-tuned piece of a uh, social mimetic engineering. Uh, I think these people have a disproportionate impact on culture as a whole. They don't necessarily plan out all the effects of their actions on society, but they certainly shape society. They're not the only thing that shapes society, but I think they are the best expression we have. Of how human agency, uh, can transform our social world, right? Where is there room for agency in society? I think the room for agency is best found not sort of like in this or that battle, right? If I use the military metaphor, but in, uh, you know, sort of redesigning how the military command structure is. If you consider a social technology, right? The social technology being um, you know, uh, another way to describe culture, uh, something that's intentionally designed, engineered, uh, it's these type of innovations can last a thousand years or longer. Think of say codes of law, right? We have continuity in continental Europe between, uh, Roman codes of law and modern civil law.
1: Right. I think what you're seeing here is that. All of these, all of these ways of inheritance, these kind of social methods—whether it's copying, whether it's um, whether it's following a kind of script, or kind of just having this inherent, uh, as you said, cultural uh, cultural mixture—such um, as the universities, I think that's often something that we ignore, and something that I noticed going from, uh, say, a hard field, or by hard I mean kind of like a technical field, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. machine learning mm-hmm. or mathematics to uh to politics is that um there's often a very big question of where we're inspecting of where we're looking because we just have this kind of vast field of cultural assumptions and we typically pick one of them and say hmm, what's the problem with this um but right. still stepping back and taking a look at the entire thing i do want to go more into why institutions might decline maybe we no longer have um maybe we no longer have the leader and maybe we have some kind of succession problem but what is it that actually takes an institutional uh structure that uh you might describe as functional uh and turns turns it into something that you might describe as imitational how does how does that right. actually happen
0: right right well you know, uh, I think functional institutions fall out of functionality in a few ways. The first one is, um, you know, the sort of designers build a structure. It's perfectly suited to its time and place. However, the time and place, they, they keep on changing and, you know, the founders are no longer around and it is extremely difficult to even try to reform an existing organization from the inside but it's even harder to know what you should reform it into you know if um, you know you sort of ask people what to do with yahoo back in 2010 I- i'm not sure i'm not sure anyone would give very good answers um i'm not sure what they would want to pivot that organization into that company um but also if you you know sort of tell someone uh you know okay it's time to reform the role of the British monarchy in modern society. Well, what do you even do, right? The the question of what might an old institution's role be in a new society and designing it just as well for this new role as it had for the old one, it's very difficult. And because of this, you often end up having legacy institutions. They still kind of work but we can't really describe them as functional. They work in the sense of, you know, having funding, having employees, performing some of the same activities, but, you know, maybe the activities are pointless. Maybe they really don't need to be performed anymore, but because of the claims to resources, to talent, to personnel, the organization keeps chugging along. So that's sort of number one. We could just call this obsolescence. I think there are frequent claims that, you know, institutions are... Obsoleted by the progress of technology. I think there is some truth to this, but I think it's uh, exaggerated. Nevertheless, it does happen, right? Um, I say it's exaggerated because I think often the functions of institutions are not obvious, right? And, uh, sort of the real role of an institution, of an organization, of a way of organizing people, it can be very hard to tease that out. It actually takes like, um, um, a very close look, a refined investigation, because, you know, fun fact, uh, you know, institutions don't have to be transparent about their functioning. Uh, honestly, even to uh, the members that they have, they might work for reasons that are completely unrelated to what the members of the institution believe are the reasons it works. Uh, usually there's some correlation, but uh, it doesn't have to be very tight. Beyond obsolescence, though, I think there is just simply slow organizational rot and hardening. These are slightly different, right? Organizational rot, I think is sort of like the decomposition and the atrophy of one's functional systems. And then the ossification, the ossification, the, um, the sort of sclerotic rigor, uh, of a large bureaucracy rests in the fact that every process that is introduced for pragmatic reasons ends up having people attached to keeping that process running who benefit directly from keeping that process running. Meaning that it just, once you introduce something um, as a new function, it just becomes very hard to get rid of. It becomes very hard to Fire a department that's been hired. Uh, it's very difficult to convince people who've uh, invested a lot of effort into a particular set of skills that no, actually these skills aren't needed and that you need to do go, you need to go do something else. Um, you know, these are, these are, I think just very, very difficult. Um,
1: and, right. and one of mm-hmm. I think it's not only difficult. Uh, to convince them, but it's difficult to really reallocate those resources altogether because not only do you have the kind of entrenchment of desire, you have the entrenchment of political power. All of these positions, you can see this most obviously in government, all of them gain greater and greater sway over the actual, um, the actual resources over which uh, over which they command. So even though you might say, um, be some kind of administrator in a public program, you gain the potential to really attack, uh, a political, um, a political, uh, candidate or a political, or like a political leader, a president, say, uh, and because of that, you kind of become this porcupine. You kind of become this porcupine that's very difficult to touch, even if, say, actually administrating that program or uh, reorganizing it is supposedly within the purview of uh, that political leader.
0: Yeah, any any system, again, any system that involves the distribution of either social roles or material resources inevitably forms sort of patronage, patronage uh, pyramids, where you have these systems where, for example, you know, a middle manager becomes more and more powerful the more people he manages. And sort of every single employee working on a team, on a pet project for a particular manager, well, they are kind of de facto part of that manager's empire. Their their principal agent problem exists, of course, even between them and their manager. But a principal agent problem is introduced between the manager and the organization as a whole. It's very easy, in fact, to pursue missions in sort of departments of a large organization that are completely at odds with the goals of the organization as a whole, right? Um, you might have people that disagree with the prioritization of a project and therefore siphon resources that were meant for one project into an alternative, an alternative they're advocating for. Uh, and sort of the more people you have working um, on maintaining that, the more powerful de facto you are in these internal office politics I think, you know, organizations just do run on office politics. It's just a question of, are the office politics functional or are they dysfunctional? And can be very difficult to have the alignment of those incentives be right. Uh, further, the happens uh, what happens over time is a deep fragmentation of knowledge where sort of, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Almost at sort of every level of society. Uh, you have also a siloing. Of information where people are always incentivized to sort of like, you know, under report information that's going up. But even if they weren't under reporting information that's going up for the sake of building up over time, uh, information asymmetry advantage over your manager, right. Therefore sort of transmuting, uh, you know, this power that's been lent to you into power that you own, right. You kind of make yourself yes. unfireable. You make yourself, um, necessary. And the more opaque you can be while still providing an input someone needs in a way, the better an office politics move that is, right? The more unassailable you are, the more it's even hard to question. People don't even understand what it is that you do. So they can kind of leave you alone. And uh, this works again, as you pointed out in government, uh, this is one of the reasons it can be very difficult uh, to fire people. At the end of the day, uh, these vast coalitions have a common interest that they want to limit who can fire you, who can remove you from a social position, from a position of drawing economic resources. Uh, which means that say in the example of the US government, I don't know, I think the, I think the US president can fire about 10 to 20,000 people. Um, I could be wrong, but I think the number is in that ballpark somewhere. I'll, I'll check my notes later. Uh, you know, that's a far cry from the federal government's employees. Right. Um, that's like, you know, that's, that's not same order of magnitude. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when people imagine, um, you know, the CEO of a company, you know, being able to fire the doorman, if they don't like the doorman, you know, even that, even that I think is, uh, is just kind of inappropriate in a lot of organizations, but, you know, in, in for-profit companies, that's, it's more organized along these lines in say something like a university or a nonprofit context or the US government, um, it's, it's, it's harder. But I think that's because most companies are just much younger organizations than the US federal government.
1: Yeah. I want to put a pin in that into the structure of these contemporary institutions because we will, um, we will be talking about that, um, very quickly. But I think one last point I want to touch on. Uh, before that is to wrap this all together into a theory of civilizations, how civilizations uh, rise, how they fall. And I think you'd want to t- talk about this through the lens of the Roman Empire, and then we can talk about today.
0: Well, uh, when it comes to the rise and fall of civilizations, I think the best way, you know, first we have to think about what a civilization is. Um, in my opinion, sort of the best way to think of them are these ecosystems of interdependent institutions, right? Where, you know, imagine it like an old growth forest, right? No one individual tree dying means that the forest is gone. In fact, the forest might be much healthier for it. Uh, but you know, if all the trees die and it becomes a grassland or even a desert, then I think it's fair to say that the forest died. So I think civilizations are again interdependent, have multiple institutions. Often each individual institution is replaceable. Uh, but you know, in a sort of ship of Theseus kind of way, either, you know, there's a point after which the civilization is so transformed, it doesn't make sense to call it the same one, or it just becomes a desert. And there's in fact this, this sort of mass desolation. Um, one way to think of this is sort of resource flows, right? Uh, you could argue that, you know, every society, uh you know be a democratic monarchical uh you know oligarchical uh it ends up having a landscape of political power and most of the action is sort of between the very center and let's say the middle of this pyramid of power and most political conflicts uh even when they involve the general population have support of these factions in the roman empire what often happened was that the late roman empire saw the most successful generals come under the most political pressure. Why? Because the most successful general was the biggest political threat to the emperor. I mean, how did the emperor get to be the emperor in the first place, right? It's today hard to imagine, but the Roman Empire was sort of almost governed by a coup d'etat where, you know, people would take the legions and declare themselves emperor. Well, how did you get the loyalty of the legions? Well, you, you led them through battle. You had some victories. You paid them well. Uh, and this process sort of when there was enough of a resource inflow going into the, Ro- into Roman society, enough of a subsidy to all of these institutions from the Senate to the religious structures to the grain goal to sort of public, uh, works to architecture and all of that to building roads, infrastructure and so on. The system had better and better economies as it scaled, right? The more you conquered of the Mediterranean, the more you could pacify uh, pacify the seas, you could eliminate the pirates as Julius Caesar did, uh, the more valuable the sea lanes would become, uh, the more incentivized you would be to expand further and further and further. You could start doing things like uh, feeding the city of Rome with grain grown in North Africa and grown in Egypt. You could do uh, things like import an educated class wholesale from the former defeated Greek states. Uh, you could do things such as import Gaulish slaves as laborers. So, in a way, there was this, this society wide patronage pyramid sort of flowing down from various sources, various sources in the middle. Um, and various sources at the top, at first the Senate and then, you know, later the office of the Emperor. And politically, once this system ran out of an input, which in the case of the Romans, I think was some combination of economic development and expansion by conquest, it, as all pyramid schemes, inevitably started, you know, it, it stopped, it failed, which meant it had to cannibalize itself more and more and more. At that point, the conflict of interest between an emperor and a general became inevitable because sort of the best way to secure your piece of the pie wasn't to make the pie larger. It was to fight, you know, your rivals, uh, for the existing slices. Um, and I think that in the Roman empire, this led to things such as excessive taxation, excessive draining of manpower, um, cannibalization of important cultural institutions. I think by the late Roman empire, The quality of intellectual life in the Roman Empire was much lower than it had been in the immediate aftermath of conquering cities such as Alexandria, right? So if you went to the library of Alexandria in 400 AD versus if you went there at 100 AD, you would see something startlingly different. At 100 AD, it's sort of a research institute. It has these mass collections of books. By 400 AD, well, some of the books are still around. Uh, but you know, not many people are sort of funded, uh, to build machines or innovate in important ways, right? Uh, to just dwell on uh, the Moseon in Alexandria, because that's actually the original term for it. Note our word museum derives from it. Uh, Eratosthenes, who produced the first estimate for the size of the earth around earth, uh, you know, by measuring, you know, the, 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 by sort of like a very geometrical approach of measuring the angle of, uh, the shadows in Alexandria and far south in Siena in Egypt. Uh, he was sort of the kind of the chief royal cartographer or say Heron of Alexandria wasn't just a philosopher as earlier generations had been, such as, uh, Aristotle or Socrates. Uh, you know, he, he was an engineer also that built, uh, you know, what we today call Heron steam engine primarily to demonstrate the principle of heat being transformable into motion, which I think people really underrate as essentially a, a, a basic but a real kind of scientific exercise. So anyway, not to dwell on this too much, but, you know, that institution was long ago defunded. The human capital going to it was long gone. Um, you know, it, it had been burned at least once uh, just over infighting. So you know the the social capital of the society was was greatly attenuated, right? Um, yeah, they- and
1: I think mm-hmm. I think what's happening here is that the social capital is what makes the difference between institutions failing kind of uncorrelatedly and just being mm-hmm. replaced, and you risking a broader broader collapse.
0: Yeah, is that right? That sounds about right. Well, the social capital is like a little bit intangible, obviously as these things are social right. capital related to what, right? You know at the end of the day, what would make you know what really makes coal uh, you know something that we can consider material capital is if you have a steam engine to utilize the coal. So hmm. I think if all those institutions in society are sort of self cannibalizing, of course, trust goes down because the only way to get ahead, is to be untrustworthy is basically this kind of very zero sum mentality, and that starts depleting these mass reserves of social trust um, it becomes it can also become you know there 's different kinds of social capital as well, like you might have knowledge uh, that 's embedded, I think knowledge that is transmitted is a clear form of social capital. Um, I think you know long standing trade relations are also a form of social capital. Uh, you definitely treat the first merchant sailing from Portugal into your port asking for spices differently than you, uh, you know, treat the 10th merchant flowing from, uh, you know, sailing from Portugal to your port city, right? And, you know, the merchants themselves, there's a massive difference when, uh, when they know that the spice trade can be profitable versus when they're still trying to find something that might work. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very risky. So. Even something like having these clear examples of economic relations that make sense, having them be running, having them be set up, that is also a form of social capital. So for the Roman Empire, one way to think about it is that it started off as a decentralized expanding empire where, you know, many different people at many levels of society are finding ways to intensify, to expand, to uh, increase production, or to, you know, just steal stuff from other people by conquering them. Uh, And then in the later one, I think you can think of it almost as this uh, decent, is this very centralized, declining empire, right? Where uh, essentially, you know, there's a top dog and the top dog predates on everyone else on the pack for sustenance until there's no pack left. And, you know, the city of Rome has been transformed from a city of millions to 70,000 people and, uh, you know, goats are grazing in the overgrown ruins of the Colosseum.
1: Right. I think, I think this is a good time to move on to the second part of uh, our conversation. And the way to kick that off, I think, is to ask about the present day. So we've seen these patterns uh, in Rome. You kind of have an abstract understanding of what they are. But I think spotting them in the present is much more difficult. So what is our kind of civilizational risk? What should we be looking towards as at least I hope most of us want to, um, want to protect the civilization and move it forward into the future? Big question. I I know.
0: No, no problem. Um, it's hard to, you know, it's, um, one thing that has to be established first is that, you know, even societies in decline usually don't have a narrative Of existing in decline. They don't have a narrative of, oh, you know, we're failing. What usually is presented and maintained is kind of a narrative, a story of victory. Um, Again, to just use sort of the late Roman example, I think that the prevailing view was that these old giant temples uh, were wasteful. And, you know, they were temples to pagan gods anyway, and we should close them down. So we're closing them down. You know, not because we can't afford to keep them running, but because we've discovered a new and better form of piety. (laughs) And, uh, you know, this, this, this rationalizing mechanism is very strong. So if we, if we look at the modern world, um, I'm in favor of environmentalism. I am in favor of striking a sustainable relationship with the natural world, but I can't help but notice that the way, say, Green politics have evolved within Europe, have made them sort of a yes. rationalization for poverty. You know, it's not that GDP has shrunk by 5% this year. It's not that everyone's poorer. No, no, no. Carbon emissions are down 10% this year. Everyone is greener. I've just said the exact same thing, right? These, these, these two correlate. It allows you to reframe defeats as victories. There's also a whole number of other examples where, you know, it's sort of, um, it's, it's not the case. It's not the case that, it's not the case that we, we can't develop other countries. It's the case that interventionism is just always bad. So what I'm referring to here mm, is consider yes. Afghanistan, right? Um, I think the U.S. has intervened too much and foolishly in many parts of the world. But the reality is that for about 10 years, we were engaged in this serious nation-building project with trillions, trillions of dollars spent educating, uh, building infrastructure, and the whole thing collapsed like a house of cards within 10 days. And okay, we we barely remember that, right? We barely remember that that happened, and that just happened a year ago, right? The Less than a year ago, even, you know? It's, yes, uh, exactly. It's startling how fast we moved on from this failure. It's um because it means some important things, right? The United States did not fail at nation building in the aftermath of World War II. So whatever you think about the world, it seems clear that something is missing. Some capability that was present in 1947 is not present in 2021 or 2010 or you know, 2001, even 2002, I guess this would be when it started. Um, so these sort of signs where we recast our failures as either victories or recast them as basically fundamentally impossible. Um, yes, this is
1: excellent. I, this is excellent.
0: I think this is what, this is sort of what the substance of this society-wide process of rationalization is, right? Because, you know, admitting defeat, that's always a political liability, um, minimizing it or presenting it as a victory. That's very important. I think another thing you might start seeing is that, you know, if it's hard to imagine sort of the decline of industrial civilization, every civilization rests on this relatively unique set of structures. But let's say that for our society, mass production is one of the defining of characteristics, right? The beautiful economies of scale that make it so that the 1 millionth car is cheaper to build than the 10th car. So when you have a new model of car, sort of the first one is like per unit, the most expensive, then it just keeps, it keeps getting better and better, right? Like if you can make, uh, if you could make a billion cars, uh, you know, the economies of scale for that production would just be wonderful. So the result of this is that we've had a need to constantly grow uh, the economy, which was relatively easy to do when population was also growing. But imagine a world where demand for chips is lower next year than it was this year, right? You can imagine a world of dropping demand in that world. Every few years, certain basic products become more expensive. Also, there's a similar argument to be made that, you know, the sources of energy we've relied on are sort of finite that, you know, sort of uh, eventually not anytime soon, in my opinion, despite uh, what many people might say, we will just run out of the fossil fuels we currently depend on. So in a way we're kind of on borrowed time until we jump to something else. Uh, The optimists would say we always jump to something else uh, the pessimist would say that no, it's fundamentally impossible. We're hitting against the basic limits of the planet, the way, uh, you know, the club of Rome people, uh, wrote about in the 1970s. Uh, I'm sort of in between. I think that, you know, civilizations successfully jump to substitutions until they don't. Imagine it's like this very wide river and you're jumping from rock to rock and then eventually you just slip and you fall and you know, that's it. That's it for your society. Your irrigation system collapsed for one, and you, you took two or three years too long to get it up and going because of some barbarian invasion. Well, look, you know, you just lost 30% of your population and, uh, you don't actually have the funding or the organizational capacity to rebuild your canals. Well, I'm sorry. You know, half of your farmland is now back to desert or actually worse than desert, right? Because when you first uh, you know, cut down the shrubland, uh, and introduced irrigation. It was sort of a green land. And after the irrigation is gone, it doesn't go right away back to shrubland. It just goes straight to desert. It's been desertified, right? It, you cut down the trees and so on. That might yeah. seem like basically an ecological failure, but it's kind of an institutional failure, right? Assuming you don't have like problems with the, the salt, the real problem was that you became very dependent on this highly productive system. The highly productive system had a hiccup. You had no real backup. And then you lost the resources to get things going after the hiccup. Um, the ability to maintain yeah. our super complex civilization is now sort of a third one. So the first one is if the world's population starts to shrink, I claim everything will start becoming more expensive because all the things that surround us are basically, uh, you know, finished products. And because of the magic of mass production, the more of a finished product you produce, so the cheaper that product is, right? I'm not talking here about the base resources. I'm talking about things like your smartphone. So that's number one. Number two, we might face like fundamental resource limits and not have the flexibility, the agility as a society to jump to the next thing. A lot of people are, you know, Arguing that we should be jumping to say renewable sources of energy, I'm not sure most of the renewables make sense. I think some of, I think a combination of nuclear and solar would probably be the best bet for a variety of yes. reasons. Um, and that sort of wind and and hydro, that these are kind of like helpful on the margin, but basically distractions. They're not seeing any type of rapid progress, say the way I think uh, photovoltaics genuinely are, nor do they have the desirable qualities of a sort of 24, 24 24-7 power that is provided by nuclear uh, energy. But I can easily imagine us just being too inflexible to really transition to a new high energy consuming civilization and make no mistake, no matter what we say, all of this stuff around us is high energy. We need to spend a lot of energy. The only thing we can hope for is that it's clean energy. We can gain some efficiencies at the cost of complexity, but every time you add complexity, well, you know, guess what? You've increased the cost of it in terms of human labor, human attention. So again, let, let's connect these two parts together. And you did ask a big question. I'm trying to sort of modularly build it together. Uh, Like dropping global population due to like a demographic winter and note, uh, you know, the population is set to decline in China, in Europe, in Japan, Russia, obviously, Uh, even the United States is now has a very low fertility.
1: It's been on this trend. Exactly.
0: So if you don't count immigration, if you don't count immigration, but you know what? I I don't know of any planet except earth from which we could draw more immigrants. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so North America yes. might be fine for a little bit more but you know what what happens when the last sort of bra- bread basket of humanity the 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 place where we draw humans once that last place goes through the demographic transition what then right global supply of humans becomes constrained um Africa i think is sort of the last p- part of the planet undergoing rapid population growth even in India it slowed down remarkably And in uh, Latin America, it's, it stopped, it stopped in most of the Middle East and so on. So, you know, you could have a demand for humans. So it actually becomes once, once you, once human labor is more expensive, it becomes more difficult to replace energy with complexity because complexity for the most part is something we have humans and systems handle and systems themselves even though we can offload some complexity onto them, they require maintenance. So you don't actually ever escape the problem of directed human attention and directed human labor. You can just sort of restructure it around, make it more efficient, make it, you know, more, um, more resilient, more, uh, to some extent sort of automated yeah, but
1: you have a fundamental you have a fundamental constraint problem here which is that the the resource that you use to actually modify these things is shrinking right that's what you're getting at here
0: that's exactly what I'm saying and if you yes. are undergoing cultural decline of some sort as well where education is uh education is of a lower quality or human capital for whatever reason honestly maybe even genetic is uh decreasing and you know, the human talent that is around is best rewarded when it plays zero sum games rather than positive sum games. And it's not even clear that human attention is a resource rather than a liability, right? It it becomes mm, really very messy, day. really messy once society undergoes this almost fractal transition from positive sum games to negative sum games in the in the game theory sense, right? A positive sum game being a win-win, a zero sum game being uh, you know, I win, you lose and a, a, a negative sum game being we both lose, but I'm playing so that I lose less than you will lose, right? This, this type of a uh, transition can be very sudden and sort of starts at kind of these bedrock institutions in society. Um, so anyway, we have then a world shrinking population possibly, um, decline in social capital across the board. Uh, more expensive energy from a failed energy transition, what i 'm terrified of what i 'm really terrified of is that we are being told to take a leap on this like you know this this raging river from one rock from one stone to the next we 're going to cross the river stone by stone, and we make the step and we fall into the raging river and we drown. If you imagine us failing the energy transition. It looks like a world where we've reduced energy consumption and become so poor, we can't actually make nuclear at scale work or solar at scale, right? That we're actually just too poor for that. And we're just in a lower energy equilibria. And, uh, yeah. you, you know, this, uh, this stuff, once you start adding it up together, you realize that you could easily see a, a society where, for example, I don't own a car. Cars are bad for the environment and gas is too expensive anyway. You know, this enemy country is the only place that exports gas and, you know, they won't export to us and we won't buy it because it'll finance their war. Note this is not hypothetical. We're seeing this happen right now in Europe. Prices at the gas pump, prices for heating homes are going up massively. Uh, Some of the Baltic states have 16% inflation because of the, they've sanctioned Russia's energy. Uh, exports as well. Consider that how how serious that is. If you kept that going for for a few decades, you could see the impoverishment of a continent. And do we really think that this is going to be sort of the last breakdown of the international order? The war in Ukraine, of course not. Of right. course not. And the the international... China's on the horizon. <laughs> totally, totally. And even if China, you know, China is not even interested in in running its own world order. It has. Too much of its own problems. So It's not even that we're substituting a bad, you know, a, 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 a w- we're not substituting one world order for a worse world order. I think we're moving towards an international anarchy, right? And that right. that is a, a world with some very big downsides, also some upsides, perhaps, but mostly downsides. Yeah. Um, before
1: we move on, there, I think we really want to put on put a pin in what ideas we've already covered so far. And I, mm-hmm. I like to frame these things like geometrically. And I think like a very very kind of visceral visualization is that you kind of have this you have this cyclical failure. You have this you have this triangle of failure here, um, where you have population decline, energy limitations, and this kind of uh amorphous uh social loss, this this social um disorganization. Well,
0: a self-metabolization, right? Where it's sort of like when you run out of calories, when the human body runs out of calories, it's going to start eating your muscles, right? So I think we are eating the muscles of our society to sustain ourselves in a variety of ways where what we're lacking, you know, this um, we're drawing upon wells of social capital that we are not replenishing. Consider how much social trust was burned during our failed, and it was failed, Response to the global pandemic. We really did try to mobilize and we really didn't do that good a job. We did, we, it had some effect, but you know, how much resistance did that produce in society? How much resentment? What was our economic cost of it? I'm not saying we shouldn't have responded, but I'm saying I think it, you know, I, I think we exhausted ourselves trying to respond and ultimately not even succeeding that well.
1: Yeah. What we did, I think was really institutionalize the worst part of -hmm. our culture because, Mm -hmm. and we've done this kind of, we've done this kind of bi-directionally. We've both institutionalized the kind of most, most neurotic, most unable to make cost benefit analysis actors on one side of the kind of bureaucracy, but we've also created this kind of additional network, this kind of uh, parallel system, which is deranged in the opposite direction, which is deranged in favor of this kind of base suspicion and tribalism, uh, that is essentially kind of Luddite or that is essentially rejecting of, uh, of technology or risk in general. It, it's this kind of mirror image where you have, you have bureaucracy and you have, you have this new decentralized thing, mm-hmm. but they're both playing into the same dynamic here. Actually, Okay. Here's, here's a frame that I really want to, want to look at because you mentioned something actually at the top of this description that I think is so incredibly important, which is this idea of the ever hedging narrative, this, this kind of nested, nested narrative where you have, you have something that looks like a success and then slowly it becomes more like, uh, more like, oh, this is inevitable until slowly it becomes, no, this is actually good for us because I think we're seeing this more and more across society. I think Teal had this observation that uh, that this occurred in banking. That first it was, oh, it's the age of growth. Then it was more like, oh, volatility is gone. So so maybe maybe we're not getting huge growth, but at least you don't have to worry about it. And then you had 2008, and it was more like secular stagnation. Uh, everything is going slowing down. We're not really getting innovation everywhere, but because of that, you should still be you should still be buying stocks, and you should still be rallying stocks. And that this narrative Mm -hmm. kind of develops and transforms exactly as you said from this, this culture of hope to a kind of culture of demerit. And I think actually you can, you can translate this exactly into, uh, this kind of organization of bureaucracy. Because if you look at say, um, if you look at say a SpaceX or this kind of like, uh, founder led company, you have, you have truly a culture of award. You have, you have a thing that doesn't exist and everything about that company. Is about bringing the thing that doesn't exist into the world and making it something that does exist. Whereas in these kind of legacy institutions, where the bureaucrats are more and more entrenched, the entrenchment comes along with the narrative. the The irresponsibility uh, comes along with the idea that uh, that there is nothing we could do, or or that this is something that we shouldn't have done in the first place. This is something that this is something that favors the entrenchment of power that is enabled by the entrenchment of power and is kind of uh, is fundamentally feeding back to itself.
0: I mean, you know, there are a few ways to build power, right? One way is that you harness resources or bring into being resources that no one harnessed before. And you use these as sort of a carrot. Um, The other Mm -hmm. way to build power is that you take someone else's carrot with a stick. So, you know, uh, no, of course, you can acquire new resources and still have a stick. This isn't a parable about violence. It's more a parallel of production versus redistribution, right? In the most abstract level. Um, if you look at the modern European union, I think power is understood by European bureaucrats to be mostly the ability to forbid things. Uh, this is yes. best exemplified by the claim of, Oh, the European union is a regulatory superpower. I'm like, What are you talking about? Are you really, are you really saying that it is a healthy society where the innovations of Americans and Chinese, so American and Chinese companies, are fined for basically tax revenue and made more inconvenient? But you basically are still using them, right? This is not, you see what I'm saying? It's it's not a producing society. Exactly. It's not a producing society. It's exactly this type of a reframe of a failure. It's not that, oh, you know, actually Russia, Russia of all places (laughs) has a better uh, track record of big software companies than Germany. (laughs) Come on, think about that for a second. It's not for lack of German talent, right? There are plenty of German startup founders uh, in San Francisco where I live. Um, and in, uh, you know, New York, heck, even in, in London to some extent. So it really is a failure of society, not to produce social capital, but to allow space for new organizations to come into being new companies. And, uh, you know, Russian society is just much worse on most dimensions than German society. Uh, but you know, they have their own Facebook equivalent, they have their own, you know, Amazon uh they have all of these interesting russian variants of companies fundamentally probably still imitative of the chinese and Ru- uh, and american ones uh but they have them and i think that something similar must have happened with say nuclear power in the united states right where it was supposed to be this transition to a world where we use a hundred times more energy right too cheap to meter wasn't a joke it was a promise right it was supposed to be this sort of thing where it's like, it's kind of pointless because there's just, you know, you pay for your subscription, uh, you pay for your energy subscription the same way you pay for your internet subscription, right? That model, that kind of makes sense once you 100x energy. Why? Because all the remaining cost is maintaining the power grid that's bringing the electricity to your home in the middle of nowhere, right? That's the only remaining cost if you drive the price of electricity low enough, at least for individual users. And it's a—it's uh, fascinating to me how much we, uh, you know, retreated from that and how we set up an incentive where there's almost, uh, you know, an, an infinite demand for making things ever more expensive, ever more safe.
1: Yeah, and... we have to lie about what narrative we had and we have yep, to kind of yep. commit to that lie. We have to double down and double down.
0: Yep, yep. And, um, you know, something similar was actually happening with space until sort of almost unilaterally, uh Elon and, and Bezos decided to step in. Uh, you know, we, we were literally relying on Russians to put people on the International Space Station. Again, like so humiliating, right? Like in a very real sense, after the retirement of the space shuttle, uh, there was a gap, a gap that probably would not be filled for decades were it not for these new private companies. And this, by the way, is not a private versus public thing. I'm pretty sure that if you could engineer and give Elon uh, you know, complete control of NASA. I think you would basically do the same thing in a nonprofit world. You know, yeah, it's just that's not possible politically with the way NASA is today. It, it was possible back in 1960 because it was a new thing. But, you know, not today.
1: Yeah, you can say that Singapore runs better than IBM and you can say that SpaceX runs better than um, than many governments. Um, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't necessarily point one way or the other.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Exactly. It just, it just was fortunate that America had, um, the openness because of its worldview to allow for sort of a new space, uh, space, uh, flight provider and that, you know, the idea that, oh, we're going to privatize it and that will fix it. Well, that worked if and only if you have an Elon Musk lying around. And, uh, you know, if you don't have those. Yeah. Anyone got a spare Elon
1: Musk? (laughs) South Africa, you got another one?
0: (laughs) No, really. But look, if you, if you just. If you if you think privatization is a panacea, please explain. You know, sort of uh, the failure of the Russian transition, right? Where privatization mm. basically meant destruction. It you know maybe those were badly built state rail systems or something, uh, but there was a real loss of wealth and a self cannibalization there in the nineteen nineties, right? That social shock is what gave us Putin's Russia. So we should actually remember that the United States failed once more in the 1990s. There was no Marshall Plan for Russia. So what What else? What was supposed to be a Marshall Plan for Russia ended up being a Treaty of Versailles for Russia. Hmm. Not to over-index on that, but again, the, the ability to develop an economy to a high-earning economy, right? Like the Marshall Plan being the sort of investment into the war-torn Europe, where the view was that, you know, in order to sort of, sustain, uh, political values compatible with those of the United States. It's in America's best self interest to help Germany, Italy, France, right. Redevelop and, and develop into, you know, wealthy, wealthy societies once more.
1: Yeah. I think we need to, I think this is actually a crucial thing to look at in our kind of toolkit is what things in society are treaties of Versailles hiding as Marshall plans, disguised as Marshall right. plans.
0: Right, right. Internally, and I think, not just yeah, internationally. You're right.
1: Exactly. I think exactly this kind of, this kind of like degrowth or like low energy narrative is exactly this. It's exactly this. And, um.
0: The, the view is sort of the green, the sort of promise of the new green deal is that, you know, we're going to go to green energy but you're not going to experience a drop in living standards because we're going to increase transfers. But the transfers of course are coming from an economy running on energy. So wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. If you think about the political economy of it, like, like if you look at us and I'm, I'm not opposed to social democracy per se, not at all. Right. But, um, and I'm not necessarily in favor of it. It works well. Some places it doesn't work well. Others. Sweden is an example of a functioning social democracy. And sort of the only reason Sweden can fiscally sustain it is because they have some very energy intensive companies. Uh, by the way, Sweden still makes steel. Did you know that? Sweden makes its own tanks and planes. They're one of the largest arms exporters in the world. Talk about good PR, right? Such a peaceful country. Uh, has per capita, like I think the highest arms exports, maybe, maybe comparable to Israel or, or even higher. Um, and there's this sort of, but of course, also, you know, they make nice, nice tables, Ikea, right? Everyone knows about Ikea. So it's actually a fairly well functioning country. And it's this energy intense export market that gives them uh the sort of like income to be able, uh the state, this is just I'm talking about state revenues, right? State taxes, these yeah. Sweden based companies that allows them to pay for the generous transfers. And the transfers are not abused because it's a high trust society. People literally are ashamed to make use of aid that they don't need because they believe someone else needs it more, right? It's not a view of I'm going to like maximize how much I can extract from this social safety net. Uh, you know, we're providing it for the, for those who really need it, but we're all these, you know, rather dour, post-Protestant work ethic people <laughs> who'll just judge each other if you're not trying to get your life together. So it's, it's kind of interesting, yeah. right? Uh, there's, a, there's a social incentive to return to it's work It's interesting
1: there. that that exists in Sweden because I, I think what's increasingly occurring, I'm here in Canada and I have a lot of connection with the United States as well, is that I, I think part of this hedging means that you have an increasing skepticism of talent. Mm-hmm. That especially with what's happening with Musk and what has happened before with Bezos and the narratives surrounding that is that you have a kind of a view of anyone with leadership or anyone with potential or anyone with idealism mm-hmm. as as the primary threat that right. we went from this um we went from this narrative of, oh, it's a fight against stagnation. Uh, to, I think, what is probably the ultimate, the ultimate hedge, which is um, basically demagoguery, uh, which is saying, um, we're not interested in pursuing growth anymore. We're not interested in pursuing the future. We're interested in uh, taking these people who could change things and keeping them out. And I think that's, that's kind of the ultimate hedge that we're, we're fighting against here.
0: Right, right, right. I think that, um, uh, the, also the mm -hmm. view, let's say that, you know, humans, um, humans will soon be obsoleted by artificial intelligence. Perhaps that's true to some extent. Uh, but I want to note that most of the successes of artificial intelligence right now rely on vast databases of human behavior. We are in a way squeezing out optimization out of a vast catalog of human behavior, say, Essays written by people, right? Why does, why is GPT-3 so good at producing a high school tier essay on any political or other topic? Well, because you have a lot of writing at that level documented and available. And I don't think we're anywhere near squeezing out everything we can out of this data set. But I do note that the internet basically cataloged the world digitally and machine learning is sort of squeezing out insights out of the digital catalog of the world, where most of this digital catalog is just stuff that is human behavior, right? So, um, you know, I would not be surprised if we start hitting some surprising barriers to AI advancement in the coming years and decades, especially because it's been best suited to sort of symbolic work. It's proven easier to have artificial intelligence write a good essay than it is to have an AI powered robot, uh, install plumbing in your home. And I think that might have surprised people, you know, from 1945.
1: I think fundamentally it's not surprising to me at all.
0: Well, because yes, I'm just this talking is actually about a popular phrase. perceptions. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This I think 80 years ago. Okay. Yeah.
1: That I have, um, this is something that I say kind of in my private life, not even popu- in, uh, in public. Or in in these kind of like public appearances, which is that machine learning is fundamentally the science of finding statistical truths. Yes, that you have uh, you have truths embedded in data that is is imperceptible to the human eye, and that this is what it does. But the problem with that is, in order to find statistical truths, you have to have statistics, and what this really brings into question is what is fundamentally the resources of a country right so you have the uh, you have resources like population uh, uh human capital in terms of education stuff like that you have natural resources you have geographic resources but i think right now right now we're approaching a time where these kind of organizational resources how much of your population is uh using the internet how much uh, innovation are we drawing not just from People kind of going on the internet and starting companies, but using the information that is embedded there. How much is that available? How much is that accessible to companies? Uh, are we are we giving people uh, more control over that? Are we creating a market where that innovation is possible? And I think the answer, once again, is that we're we're doing this strange dance where we're backing away from a thing that we can't do, and we're saying, uh, oh, this is this is actually a bad thing. And the latest data point on that, I actually made this. In, in my notes, and I'm not sure if we were going to talk about it, but it ends up being very important to what we are talking about already is that there's this enormous cost to GDPR, this, uh, this privacy law, quote unquote, yes. privacy law, uh, in, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, or sorry, not in the United Kingdom, in the A European Union. Union. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, literally not that. Um, but yeah, uh, in the European Union, which is essentially restricting the function of say companies like Facebook or or worse companies that uh, could become the next Facebook and not only that but the thing that I'm that I've been very excited for that I told people when when I was like very naive when I was just first looking into politics I was like okay you have these kind of coordination problems you ha- have these problems of finding out underlying psychological truths about humanity and you know what's really getting into in the way of that? Not having enough data. You know what's really causing the replication crisis? Us like not being able to like operationalize studies on these gigantic networks of human interaction. But mm-hmm. as that's proven to be much harder than we thought, as I think this draws from kind of the failure of a field that I'm basically adjacent to, which is network science, as this is shown to be like actually very bad or just not had the ability so far in order to operationalize any of this information, we've kind of backed away from it slowly. We've kind of shouted privacy and we've uh, turned our back on using this information to create more uh or to uncover more societal truths. And at right. the same time, I think China might be actually on the breakthrough of this because say what you will about them, but I think they're developing an ever more sophisticated understanding of uh, how this information works, especially uh, domestically.
0: Right, right. I mean, one of the things that I've written in a piece uh, titled The Centralized Internet is Inevitable, uh, which was actually mm. a provocation, right? It was um, pointing out that the previous generations and waves of technology that were supposed to decentralize the world have centralized it, right? Because the internet became the instrument through which we documented the physical world And finally made the physical world legible, uh, you know, to bureaucracies and especially our own social world. So one way to think about it is that because of the mass adoption of smartphones and so on, the individual became both as a statistic and as a literal individual as part of a mass and as just a single user whose uh, audio and video can be recorded from the phone became much more transparent to centralized bureaucracies. However, centralized bureaucracies did not become much more transparent to the individual. And note, of course, Mm -hmm. once that data is available, you can make great use of it. Currently, we don't have a good answer for why not China. I think we are every step of the way. We're like, okay, China has gone too far. You know, they have a social credit score system. You know, our social responsibility index is completely different. It has these like five (laughs) details, you know, it has these five details from which it's different. Um, but actually all we're negotiating is how fast we're going into China's future. We don't actually have a solution to the fundamental problem that the more online society is and note, this is the only part of the economy that's growing. And the only part often of government that sort of works is stuff that's driven by basically mass surveillance or mass data gathering. We don't have an answer to the riddle of, you know, okay, the individual has been made more transparent. Institutions have been made, uh, have been, have not become more transparent in response. You would need like 10,000 Julian Assange's leaking the emails of a hundred thousand organizations to even start making a dent on the publicly available information individuals have about everything from like, you know, Twitter's trust and safety committee to, uh, you know, the Swedish Ministry of Health to, uh, you know, the IRS's, the IRS's decisions to pursue you know, one, one violation, not the other. The politicization of the IRS, for example, is something that can easily happen. And in fact happens in, uh, in countries such as Russia and China. Uh, you know, without this alternative vision, we're just stuck negotiating on how fast we're going to converge on the Chinese model. And note, you are completely correct that, uh, this just abstaining from this information, not gathering it, uh, you know, that, doesn't solve anything. it just slows down the economic gains that will be reaped by someone else
1: I'm, I'm skeptical that we can ever get to anything other than a than a cruel imitation of the Chinese model. like this is exactly what happened with lockdowns, right mm-hmm. We wanted to we wanted to kind of like we, we looked at what looked like a flex, right it, It's yes. now turning out to be pretty bad for China uh, nowadays, but what looked then like an enormous flex, and we said, okay, we want to do that too and we tried and we failed. We, tried, we failed yeah. horribly and I think that's exactly what's going to happen uh, if we try to pursue the same kind of uh the same kind of like social credit system. Because here's the thing and and I know I'm going to take a lot of flack from my listeners, my more libertarian listeners, but like mm-hmm. a functional social credit system can be good. There are problems that it solves that our current society does not solve. Yes. But the thing is what we're going to do, and, and like, of course, there are also extreme downsides, but the thing is, I'm not sure we can even solve those problems. Like, I'm, I, I think that if we, we don't have the cost function for that because you have to have a very precise and very deep understanding of what the cost function is to actually order and to hierarchize your society if you're going to build something like that. And I think that in, in the West, we have no sense of that whatsoever. We have no sense of um, of how to gain those statistical truths and how to gain those orderings from those truths.
0: Right, right, right. No, that's that's true. That's true. And one of the sort of one of our one of our bigger problems is the misinterpretation of systems that often work on very different principles than what we imagine them to work on. Um, Mm. You know, one of the things that's been under discussed is that in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, you would have Chinese governors impounding masks meant for other provinces to be used in their own province. Okay, one way to think of this is that, oh, this is corruption. But a different way to think about this is, oh, wow, the Chinese system actually, despite its appearances and claims, is much more decentralized than what it claims to be. It, it has a weird kind of federalism, right? Provinces will pursue their economic and public health interest, you know, to the exclusion of other provinces. And I think that's, that's sort of very notable, right? I think we, we often take claims of how systems work at face value. And to flip this around a little bit, I think because the US prides itself on its federalism, we, uh, miss how centralized the system it is and just how much more powerful Uh, the central organs of society are, uh, compared to, you know, uh, what's supposed to be the sort of like middle layer, like be it the federal government versus states, be it, say, the intellectual pull and influence of the Ivy League universities versus some, some second or or third rate universities. Um, and, you know, the cultural impact of the large cities, the, the, the star cities, let's call them like New York, LA, uh, SF, uh, DC, versus, you know, comparable, slightly smaller cities. Um, you know, the cultural frontier is very unequally distributed in cities. The power, the decision-making power is very unequally distributed among government agencies. Uh, this doesn't mean that it's wielded in a coherent way. It just means that, you know, some parts are vastly more powerful than others. And very little of this has the reality match the sort of description we find on the surface, the self-description.
1: Yeah, I think America is incredibly centralized. I think there was this graph on Twitter uh, that was like, here is the percent of local spending, or local, yes. uh, provincial, and uh, federal spending in China, and in the United States. And in China, this is something that, as you said, there's a great misconception about. The vast majority of spending is local, exactly, is by these local bureaucrats that, are actually functional. Like we we have this kind of stereotype of a bureaucrat, but um, these Chinese bureaucrats are actually like they're actually doing pretty well. And you can say, okay, it's easier to get growth in in the Chinese society, but you don't have this. In the end, you do have this differential that exists, and some of that I think is just based on this inherent order in uh, both the the American and Chinese societies because. Here's where I think all of this comes together. Uh, you had a quote that I wrote down, which is, quote, I feel so much of deadness is downstream of the desire for physical safety and the desire for social safety, end quote. And what's happening here is I think you have a universal hedging. That this kind of, that this kind of safety, that this kind of safetyism, this kind of neuroticism is kind of a universal hedging. Um, it's it's exactly what we're doing with energy it's exactly what we're doing with finance but with but with how we order society itself yes this is this is actually something that i'm really really grateful for and that yeah this it feels like it's all coming together here because this is connecting the kind of moral my moral philosophy with my institutional analysis is that i've long sensed that the difference between a culture in Asia and a culture in uh, the United States is a kind of open competitiveness, and you can just look at this with a difference in math tests. So, a math test just in school, I think, in in high school in the United States, anyone who is kind of reasonably competent is going to get ninety-ish, uh, right? They're going to to probably get ninety-two to, to one hundred on a, on a high school math test, even up to say like. Uh, up to um, any any course that's available to the general public, and in China, yeah. this is this is quite the opposite. Y- you right. have extremely difficult exams that are that are high ceiling that um, create a vastly disparate uh, distribution. And not only is this distribution um, even possible to identify, but it's but it's made explicit. It's, it's put into the view of every parent, every student. Here's how your child did, and here's how your child did relative to the class and relative to the country. And that this explicit competition is what a society that has innovation in its mind, innovation in its future, or at least its desired future looks like. And when you have a failure of organization, when you have institutions that are primarily uh, beholden to a kind of inheritor class, people who have inherited their positions who don't have the kind of talents, then you have this universal hedging in the form of taking that competition, hiding it, and eventually destroying it.
0: One of my um, favorite comparisons here on on this topic is the difference between uh, the class of billionaires in Europe versus the United States. Um, in the United States, mm. uh, you know 70, 70% of the billionaires basically made their uh, you know, they were probably initially wealthy, but let's be honest, going from a millionaire family to being a billionaire, uh, I'm sorry. That's, you know, that's an achievement. I,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not, it it's not an matter. easy thing.
0: It's not an easy there are thing. millionaires who are so, never so, billionaires. So, so, so with that, with that caveat, with that caveat, um, 70% of sort of American billionaires are self, are self-made in, in this qualified sense of the word. 70% of European billionaires are inheritors people who inherited mm. their wealth. so isn't it interesting that in a society that is branded uh, so that's European European Union European countries they're branded as more egalitarian than America because we regulate income right you, you basically have this uh, this tax taxation of the accumulation of wealth but in practice if you already have wealth you're far safer from possible competitors in Europe than in the United States. Like in a way, it's very, it's much easier to have not earned your wealth, but to just enjoy it in Europe than the, in the United States. And to me, that's very interesting because, you know, one argument could be made that possibly uh, European social democracy has devolved into a racket to protect existing industries from disruption and the family wealth tied to these existing old companies. And the U.S. is better in this regard. But let's be honest. The U.S. has a bunch of companies on life support as well. Consider, let's say, you know, all of the favors done to the uh, legacy car manufacturers recently, uh, you know, by the Biden administration. I think it's good that they're supporting electric cars in the United States, but I think it was very notable uh, that Tesla was not mentioned or included, despite being a clear success, the front runner, and the innovator in this industry. So that that really showed. Uh, this kind of favoring of of the older, more politically connected class, even on these purely economic questions.
1: Yes. I think the reason why, and let me know what you think on this as well, the reason why politics is centered around the fight between old power and new power is that these are where the rules of the future are written. We have pre-written rules for how new powers compete. It's called Mm -hmm. competition. Uh, And we have the same for how old powers compete. It's called prestige. And all of those games are games where the rules are agreed upon. But the question is, what are the rules um, between old power and new power? Well, they're constantly being litigated. They're in a realm of unknown. And maybe in some places, maybe in uh, Europe, there's much more of uh, a domination of the old powers over the new and maybe in america it's uh the balance is tipped towards the other way but i think that this litigation of rules is precisely what makes politics as fraught as it is
0: i think that for democratic politics especially to work it kind of has to be a tide it has to be a tide that lifts all boats because as soon as um As soon as you live in a world that's a shrinking pie, you're basically just, you know, you're on an island, or rather, you're up in the Andes Mountains and you're just voting who you're going to eat first. Hmm. So, the negative and positive sum of both things, I think uh, I described this in a theory, a set of theoretical uh, essays I call empire theory. Uh, Empire being not just like empire in the sense of like imperialism, but just in the sense of like a, a zone of coordination. And I point out that sort of the difference between expanding and declining is precisely this factor of, you know, if all organizations are to some extent pyramid schemes, are you self metabolizing or are you bringing in new resources from the outside, right. Or creating new resources afresh. Um, I think that, you know, for the most part, high freedom architecture societies basically need fairly robust growth because otherwise sort of uh, zero-sum competition takes over. And if it's zero-sum competition, then by far, you know, the most humane uh, thing is to just have, uh, you know, a single power center in charge of everything.
1: Yeah. I think this maybe delves into a kind of uh, Machiavellianism, right? In And here I mean like, very uh, explicitly referring to the kind of political philosophy that Machiavelli laid out, um, which is um, a rule by fear, a rule by power, and a rule by uh, centralization, and a rule by kind of real politic. Um, Yeah, so this is very interesting. I think that's... What's strange is that you have... I think what you have in... In the modern Western societies, at least, is a type of Machiavellianism hidden in the kind of language of safety. It, it's a, it's exactly the hedged version of Machiavellianism. It's an, it's a nested, hedged version of Machiavellianism where we're going to do centralization, but we're going to say it's, it's for safety and it's for uh, all these kind of political narratives. We're going to do, um, we're going to do rule by fear, but we're not going to say it's, it's, Um, fear of, uh, fear of this kind of explicit threat, but this kind of fear of implicit threat of like, of, um, social mores or whatever. Um, and, or let's, let's make this more explicit. It's kind of like the modern, especially American kind of social ideology or race ideology is that you have this fear of not necessarily of kind of an explicit threat, you have this fear of kind of, um, social sanction. And then your, your kind of uh your rule by cynical calculation is this kind of is this kind of bureaucratization is this kind of proceduralism and so you have this you you yeah i think that this process of this process of hedging that you described this is so important for understanding and i'm not sure if i'm overfitting here i'm not sure if i'm applying this too broadly But I do think like this pattern is just so evident and this is, yes, I'm just trying to working, I'm just trying to work with these ideas, uh, in in real time and I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of, uh, tripping up a little bit. But here's the, here's the core, here's the core problem with this, I think, is that we've, we've innovated, strangely enough, we've innovated a very powerful improvement over the past. And this might be due to hyper as well. We, we've, we've innovated a very new system of how we can paper over things, of how we can lie to ourselves, and how we can uh, convert society into a zero-sum game or into a negative-sum game without most people knowing it, with most people still behaving in a positive-sum way. Would you say that that's correct?
0: I think that that's correct. One Mm -hmm. thing I want to emphasize though, is that, um, the, the existence of actualizable opportunities, right, is important because there's a way in which we can't talk ourselves back into an optimistic mindset. We have to build the machinery that makes the optimistic mindset realistic without this. I think, uh, you know, we can draw upon social reserves Possibly, you know, one way to think of it also is that optimism is a little bit like taking a loan from the future. And if the loan is for a good investment, then the optimism was always justified. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if the loan is not spent wisely, then it was always, uh, retroactively foolish and delusional. And, uh, you know, we, we have to make it so that it is realistic and sort of correct to be pro social. To believe in the positive externalities because they manifest, because they are made apparent, uh, rather than try to optimize for extraction, relabeled, uh, coped, hedged into uh, into benevolence.
1: So I think we, at this point, have the stakes in front of us. We have what can happen if we don't manage to change course, and we have what we can hope for, what we can aspire to if we do. But how do we actually get there? How do we go from uh, the state we're in right now to a state where we're valuing those live players again, where we're actually doing innovation and we're incentivizing it as a society?
0: This is a good question, because to a significant extent, I think we already have the live players in our society necessary for a rebirth. We could always do better in having a culture that's more open to innovation individual growth, individual rebranding, experimentation, learning, and so on. It would be excellent if we can increase the number of live players in societies through such things. But our core problem is that we're not making use of the live players that already exist in our society. We are too enamored with credentialism and too enamored with statistical methods, honestly, 1950s methods. This isn't machine learning. Right. This is 1950s bureaucratic methods of measuring talent and shepherding talent underneath our noses. What was supposed to be accurate measurement of human potential frequently and not so secretly, very closely related to the construct of IQ. A lot of these measures were kind of IQ proxies. It has over time morphed to the point where meritocracy has become a dirty word because everyone feels that what is called meritocracy is not meritocracy. Consider admissions to the Ivy league universities where a choreographed high school experience, including nonprofits started in your name by your mom, uh, you know, with the uh, helping the fashionable cause du jour, uh, writing coaches for your essays, how that is just a reflection of helping entrenched uh families sort of retain their existing privileges. And if these were family cultures that sort of had a noblesse obligée, that had a view that, you know, they owe their success to society, and they have a personal responsibility to better themselves to be worth it. If that were the case, it would be much easier. But for the most part, they're not very self-aware. Our society's elites somehow bizarrely delude themselves into thinking they're underdogs. You can even see this among, say, I don't know, the journalistic class on Twitter. You can see this among many, many different classes of people. But what does this have to do with live players? Well, if all the institutions are gatekept for the cookie cutter, where the cookie cutter is the very socially polished, the very already existing, the very acceptable and same as everyone else, then always even live players get out-competed by imitators. If the competition is to be the best imitator, then the live player doesn't have an advantage. So we would do well to, at all levels of our society, put some spice into who we accept in positions of power. I always considered it a very positive sign that the French parliament could have a successful politician who's a Fields medalist and has an eccentric sense of fashion, including a, a, a love for wearing giant spider brooches, right? That's a positive sign about French political culture. It's a positive sign about American entrepreneurial culture that its entrepreneurs can be eccentrics. It is and was a positive sign for Britain that scientists could in their you know private lives be unusual or in their political views be a little bit out there. And finally, it's a positive sign if a politician is shocking and says things no one else would say. You know, I don't, I don't think the Trump administration was at all uh, effective or successful in improving society. I'm not even sure they tried. However, I will note societies that have charismatic, energetic politicians have good political culture, at least if those politicians have teams they know how to work with. So again, that we can barely name a politician worth listening to is actually makes us more vulnerable to the occasional demagogue, not less. And I hear I'm not commenting on the Trump administration. I'm just talking about the specifics of where do demagogues thrive? I would actually say that they perhaps thrive best in societies that are filled with boring politicians, some of them have substance, some of them don't. Imagine if all the politicians were sort of charismatic, were good leaders in an emotional and technocratic sense. In such an environment, the demagogue would have a hard time competing, right? You can't ever neglect a key dimension of excellence to be left for your opponent. So politics also needs room for live players. And honestly, I think ideology needs room for new players. I would warmly encourage everyone to try to develop new strands of thought. One of the few excellent positive developments of society has been the proliferation of small niche communities deeply interested in their topics. Signal chat groups that have moved off the open internet to go deeper, to read together, to debate together, and eventually to meet up and organize. I think the internet meetup the sort of Twitter meetup um, organized by someone is the true replacement to what was once the town hall. The public square is fully digital, but we can exit the fully digital realm back into the physical. We can meet together, make companies and so on. So that's one of the small openings there. And I think it would be very actually healthy. There are, of course, deep problems with online culture. There's toxicity and so on. But you know what? It would be deeply healthy if there was, uh, you know, some sort of mechanism for just grabbing people who have made a reputation for themselves online and putting them, uh, you know, letting them pass the line and putting them into some positions of authority in society. I actually think that, you know, if some of the regulators in the European Union bureaucracy had experience as influencers, maybe their decisions would be better. And we think of influencers hmm. as very shallow, but it actually takes enormous entrepreneurial grit to reach the very top of that field. Not to mention, then there is this vast demand for basically private intellectual production. Have you just noticed how hyper intellectual uh, some podcasts have become? I mean, I guess I'm on on certainly, one of these. Uh, <laughs> and how often this is enough to sustain uh, small markets or nonprofit ventures. Right? There's a a thirst for thinking. Um, and, you know, there is still a class of people in our society that are basically right now uh information workers. They're software engineers. But as I'm sure the software engineers listening to this episode know, just being a software engineer doesn't necessarily mean you get to determine much about what's happening with your company or what happens with wider society. But in a very real way, you're paid to think right. You're paid to think in abstractions. And there is a thirst, a desire to be a more well-rounded person. And this is the one sector of the economy that has grown over the last 30 years. So what you have here then is an island of positive sum thinking, of a desire to find your place in society, and a willingness and openness to rethink it from first principles, and finally, communities of such people. If there is an intellectual renaissance, I think it will have been born uh, you know, If there's an intellectual renaissance in this like late Western civilization, I think it will have been born on the internet among bored software engineers debating the fundamental issues of life with each other, not from
1: the halls of zero-sum academia. Yes, that, that's incredibly powerful. And I think it's an articulation of something that I've thought for a long time, which is that one of the benefits of hyperconnectivity is that a lot of networks which were unviable have now become viable. Just think of how much you had to do in order to organize a kind of um, exclusive uh, exclusive hidden network in, say, the 1800s. That, that would not have been an easy thing to do. You would almost certainly have to be gathering people geographically in a city, um, you would almost certainly have enormous costs and coordination and difficulty even just arriving at the same time and uh, all of those problems are solved now, so you have these situation in which these underground networks now have gotten an upgrade now have the kind of hard technology and I would argue have the social technology as well in order to to take this um, to take this method of 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 competition or of recreating this explicit hierarchy or this explicit competition over some kind of value over some kind of deliverable and converting that into reality and creating an environment where people are brought up in that way, where people are um, developed, where people are, um, are learning how to function in the world in this kind of positive sum island. I think that, is really reminiscent of my childhood as well. Uh, I started at a very young age in um, informatics Olympiads, which is basically um, uh, a competition similar to a math competition where you are where you're writing code to solve incredibly difficult, um, essentially math problems. And I think that without that kind of informal network and without that kind of uh, a customization that absorption of culture of this kind of explicit competition, positive sum type thinking that I wouldn't be nearly doing what I am today. I guess this is a very strong I think, note
0: I think of there's optimism. A, there's there's also sort of, um, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know your age. I'm 33. For me, the formative intellectual experience was going to the library, reading too many books because I was a bored kid and then going on online forums on obscure topics and debating them. And there's a very interesting phenomena in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where, you know, what you said on the internet kind of just never mattered. It was laughable, the idea that something you would say on the internet would matter IRL. But people had a culture of tearing each other's arguments to shreds just on technicalities. I don't know if you ever saw the sort of like uh, old style forum post where you would have a quote of a single sentence and a rebuttal of that single sentence followed by a quote yeah. of a paragraph with like three paragraphs of rebuttal and or agreement. And I, I think in a way, it's, it's almost like everyone got like a Talmudic or Jesuitical education for everyone <laughs> who participated in, in this culture. And, uh, you know, I think also that, that 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 internet culture, right on the cusp, right before the internet became a mass phenomena, I think it kind of formed this generation of online writers. I no longer call them bloggers because, you know, you know, even say uh so many of them have gone on to write for mainstream publications, even say the most controversial ones like Curtis Yarwin, you know, are now appearing on Fox News or whatever. It They really were and are this generation's writers. You can see even over time, you know, the New York Times has a nice style. The New Yorker has a nice style of writing. But their writing is slowly shifting to match online norms of writing, not the other way around. Yes. Else. Yeah. Every
1: yeah, year I that think, passes,
0: uh, the New Yorker reads more like a high quality blog. And you know, that's a compliment.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think what you're seeing with a lot of this is that in the end, no matter how much hedging you do, no matter how much entrenching and institutionalizing you do there is a kind of way there is all, I don't want to say always, but it seems like at least in, in the history of American culture, Western culture, there is a way for these ideas to rise to the top. I think that when you have these informal networks, when you have these connections, I mean, it's like, I, I think there's one kind of like Jarvin, Jarvin camp uh, podcaster who says uh, something along the lines of the Twitter anonymous accounts are our true intellectual elite. right? And And there's something there.
0: There, there is, there is, um, because in a way they're still, they're still also free. Um, but I also think that, you know, the most challenging transition, you know, the most challenging transition is, uh, once you've incubated being an intellectual elite as an anon, how do you, you know, how do you go out with your name? Because at the end of the day, organizations will be moved by people with names, not people without sorry, web three friends. You know, I think, I think the cypherpunk dream, uh, I think it died in the nineties. I think, uh, human physical bodies are going to get pretty surveilled. So if things can be done, they'll have to be done in your, you know, in your physical body under your real name eventually. But before then, maybe you can learn, maybe you can play, maybe you can build networks of people, uh, sort of safe with these kind of, uh, in a way, disposable identities because the beautiful thing about the pseudonymous account is that, uh, I I don't keep any anymore, but I did back in the day. You can explore points of view that you don't even fully agree with. I think the intellectual value of that has been greatly underestimated, you know, doing a bit, you know, like someone picks a niche political ideology or someone becomes a, a a train Twitter guy. It's like, of course, the full human being has other interests in high-speed trains, but it does something very interesting when, uh, they run such an account.
1: Right. I think an anonymous account is the kind of ideal uh, place for exploration and in a way for learning. Like maybe yes, that's what your education, that's your what university, yeah. that's the real university. <laughs> yeah. Your university should come with an anonymous Twitter account.
0: Um, I, I think that would be amazing. I think MIT, if it doesn't already have an anonymous server where all MIT students can speak anonymously with no limits, uh, I think they should have it. I think they should have it with, let's say, maybe a small limit to like, you know, no death threats or something like that. But I think that would make MIT much more creative.
1: Yeah. I guess one of the differences here as well is basically how willing you are to be, to be highly selective, to say that you're curating a group and to stick to your guns when that curation happens. Mm-hmm. Because I think part of what makes that work is that it is MIT, right? It is people who are kind of, already high quality, or like, let's just say like high IQ, basically, who who have a lot of technically
0: proficient, they have an interest in idealism, there's an on-campus culture. Basically, like the value of that group is that in an extremely filtered environment, being able to speak the truth as you see it, even if you're wrong, is one of the best ways to discover truth, but also one of the best ways to sort of uh, reform parasitical aspects of a culture, Right. Where if it's an unfiltered environment, it goes to the lowest common denominator. But if you set the common denominator high enough, uh, you know, then sometimes I think a group can know more than an individual or at least can discover something more than an individual can. And, uh, those are magical circumstances when they come together.
1: I think something that I've heard you talk about as well is that this is kind of a religious revival. It might not be explicitly a religious revival, but this rewriting of norms from within a kind of enclosed community, that kind of is what this is, right?
0: It is a discovery of a new set of social norms for living together. We are in the process of building full stacks of social technologies. Like, think about, say, you know, the norms around something like, you know, doxing or group participation. Or, uh, you know, uh, you know, the way people resolve uh, their beefs and so on and so on. There's just so much to unpack there. And these are social lessons people are going to go and take out into society, into their organizations, just as the sort of GI generation took out the lessons of, uh, fighting, uh, the second world war and their experiences in the, uh, you know, branches of the armed service and distributed those across society. Like, you know, what does sort of, you know, what does, what does IBM feel like when, uh, you know, people who are running it primarily grew up intellectually on the internet? What does the DOD look like? Uh, you know, what does the White House look like? Right? These institutions will have to change and many of them, I hope, will fall back into a functional setup, something appropriate to our time and place something innovative and something that sort of relies on human strength and cooperation rather than human weakness right rather than um this type of um because there is also a negative some culture right online i do think there's sort of a, a sort of a, a mob based uh firing squad where it's just sort of like destroying person after person after person getting some weird energy out of it
1: yeah, but um, these are different people. Like these are these, these are, are just,
0: different like, people, but they are both online cultures. There exists a zero sum and negative sum online culture too. We can't deny that.
1: Yeah, but what I'm saying is, like, the people who are going to create, mm-hmm. like, the, the people who are interested and who are able to create these new things, like, I'm not sure if this is just live players. There, there's kind of like a lower. Oh part no, no, The people but, that often yeah. have
0: like very high quality scripts. One thing I want to emphasize is that. You you do not have to be a live player to be very positive some and pro social. If you just do something very, very well, if you uphold a standard of professionalism, in a way you're helping also to maintain the fabric of society, right? Like being an excellent doctor sets the example for other doctors, even if you're not innovating in how you're being a doctor, you know?
1: Yeah. But the idea is that you have these you have these circles of high quality interaction. Of course. And yeah. you have these circles of low quality interaction. And you can kind of see them coming. They're they're highly correlated, and mm-hmm. not just between individuals, but be, between like kind of um, ideologies or psychological profiles. And more they're, and more,
0: they're sort of like separating, right? It's almost like water yes, and exactly, oil, exactly. And then the big question is: fundamentally, do you believe we live in a zero or a positive sum era? If we live in a positive sum era, then one of these is going to radically outgrow the other. And uh you know, I think that that's some cautious grounds for optimism, despite everything, I feel sort of the positive some communities, I think if not destroyed, uh, they're going to win out.
1: Yeah. And I think something about this online culture is actually very good for you if you're willing to make those kind of differences and those kind of partitions explicit. For example, something that's just been very good for me in my personal life Mm -hmm. um, is that you can actually just, especially if you're on a university, you can explicitly increase the quality of people who are willing to interact with you by saying something along the lines of, uh, I, am, I think vaccines work, and I think that people should be treated neutrally based on race. They should be treated identically based on race. Mm-hmm. And a mm-hmm. lot of these kind of social performers uh mm-hmm. will will go either way and and will not int- will they will themselves will choose not to interact with. Them. I mean and of often, course this can go often it's super out of hand.
0: It's super good to uh you know sort of uh seem boring, disinteresting or like, you know, even off-putting boring people like you sometimes you want to offend the tribes not to provoke them but just so they go away and stop wasting your time exactly exactly i I have absolutely loved my twitter experience for the vast majority of it lately it's a little bit worse but mostly due to just the problems of scale by sort of refusing really to participate in the surface level culture war a lot of what i have to say of course Mm. has ends up having culture war consequences but like the desire isn't to participate in that. The desire is to figure out things and you know build the truth. And the, the dichotomy you presented, I think, is like a pretty good one. That's one good way to do it. Uh it 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 weeds out sort of also the people who just want to agree with everything on their group. Oh yes, yes. And, and it's important to get rid of those people because, you know, uh consensus Uh, you know, nine times out of 10, it's correct and wise. And one time out of 10, it's, uh, insane and evil. And you have to say no to the insane and evil part.
1: Yeah. I think this would be kind of my number one advice for, uh, people of my age is just prune your networks. Be, spend a lot of time thinking what kind of traits you, of people you want to attract and how those traits, um, are attracted. And this isn't kind of this isn't kind of very difficult stuff. It's usually just what are people who I like, right? What are people who I like either who uh, I'm observing kind of in public or who I'm friends with? Uh, often the latter. And then what traits do these people have? And what traits? Uh, what traits do those people want? And these kind of these kind of sorting algorithms, essentially these kind of social sorting algorithms are probably among the most useful social technologies that we're just beginning to innovate.
0: Right. I think that's right. Um, The the view that finding some audience is easy, but finding the right audience is difficult, that is a recent view. That was not the case once. It was actually very difficult to get any audience whatsoever. But today, Mm -hmm. it is easier to get a audience it just might not be the audience you want.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you have any advice for someone who is uh, who is coming up and who is thinking about how uh, either they want to change the world or just survive in it?
0: Well, um, don't neglect your economic fundamentals. Uh, I do think we're in for some rough times. Um, don't neglect rolling... You know, don't don't believe that others will organize... Uh, you know, your social life for you, uh you're kind of stuck in the, um, you know, difficult but enviable position of if you start uh, a book club, it might be the only book club your friends have ever attended. Like the sort of bowling alone syndrome, the sort of atomization of society, bowling alone being this, you know, good book from the 1980s that's since become even, it's sort of become more and more prophetic as time goes on. It was even written before the age of the internet. Uh, many people, uh, lack this like organized, semi-organized community, right? It's one of, it's one of these things that's, uh, that's really missing. So if you have basically enough to sustain yourself, if you have an organized social community, and if you're participating in like some, some sort of high quality network of people, like really like entrepreneurial, intellectual, almost doesn't matter. Um, I think then you're already ahead of, uh, of 99% of people. I think you, you just have the tools to do so many things. You might just decide to just have, uh, a, a basically nice life and a decent career. And guess what? Because of your online presence, because of your in-person organization skills, it, it'll be easier to find a job. Or you might decide that, you know, actually, uh, I want to go forward and I want to sort of, uh, engage in creating like new new culture right new new ways of being new scenes uh new magazines new art projects new political movements new um social movements or you know build amazing companies
1: Yeah last question of the show and it's a bit ironic because we've been kind of talking about this the entire show uh so uh, have a new, have at least one new answer uh which is what is something that is uh and that has too much order and that needs more chaos or something that has too much chaos and needs more order
0: well we've been touching on this for for we we didn't we, we did touch on this multiple times through the show and it's a question that is always bound to time and place uh you know many things that today are too ordered were once too chaotic many things that were once too ordered have now become chaotic but if I were to give sort of a fresh answer on something that we haven't really touched on, I think that uh, I would actually be of the opinion uh, that the financial world could use some more chaos because there's just a whole lot of parts of the structure that don't make sense and us trying to keep it working as it was working. And I do put working in quotation marks. Uh, I think that's actually this can that we've been kicking down the road for a few decades and we're at the end of the road. So we, we need to start learning as a society and experimenting with sort of alternative political infrastructure around finance. Now, maybe this actually does mean a sort of transition to crypto. Maybe it means that something more modest, like, you know, the old financial giants go under and, you know, fintech giants such as Stripe basically take the place of uh, these banks um, maybe it means that, you know, there are multiple reserve currencies in the world that we go off of the dollar hegemony. Um, but I think we, we have l- reached the limits of where we can just patch this thing up. And it's so central to our society, to our production and to our individual being, uh, that, uh, we have to get it right and we have to get it right fast. And we don't know enough to design it from first principles.
1: Yeah. I definitely want to think about that in the future as well, and maybe have you on again to talk about it. But uh, thanks for coming on the show, Samo. It's been it's been beyond my wildest it's been beyond my wildest dreams, really.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you very much for having me. It was a great conversation.
1: That was my conversation with Samo Buria. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed having it, and listening to it in hindsight. I really do think especially the idea of ever hedging narratives, narratives that seem to be conceding ground, but really are making the same failed point over and over again, while hiding this inability, this complete lack of competence. I think that's an essential frame for uniting the moral and societal thinking that we have today. This, and many other ideas that I'm still processing, still looking back on, I think are really crucial to where we'll head in the future. As I said up top, you can always help out the podcast by subscribing, of course, by leaving a review, and by telling a friend. That, of course is the one thing that you can do that no one else can. A very, very powerful thing, the individual recommendation. I'll be back next week with another brilliant conversation. See you then.